Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you to new listeners who subscribe with each new podcast. Each time I release a new episode, the audience spike is bigger. And that's also because you're sharing it on Facebook, retweeting and leaving reviews. So thank you for spreading the word. And a special appreciation to Caroline Cowell, Michael Taub, Ben Jacobs, Joseph Fisher and Joey Sless for your generous donations, which are also real morale boosters for me too. Today's guest is a symbol of American tolerance, religious freedom, and a word we just don't hear enough of, philo-Semitism. Special Envoy Mr. Ilan Carr of the Trump administration is charged with monitoring and combating anti-Semitism in foreign countries. I caught up with him at the majestic new American embassy in Nine Elms, London, arranged around indoor gardens with plants and flowers from America's national parks amid splendid art, including a miniature model of the Mayflower with the English and Union flags on the main mast. Ilan's role was created by a congressional act in 2004, but the brief has changed rather abruptly. Tragically, he also reviews anti-Jewish hate at home. 2019, the year of Pittsburgh and Poway synagogue massacres. Unthinkable that American synagogues at prayer would be attacked, and now the threat is very, very real. The alarm it caused across the US was perhaps best illustrated when the Poway rabbi addressed President Donald Trump on the White House lawn. Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein lost fingers trying to protect his congregants from the shooter and his worst attempts to kill. Just five days ago, Saturday morning, I faced evil and the worst darkness of all time, right in our own house of worship, right at Chabad Poway. I faced him, and I had to make a decision. Do I run and hide, or do I stand tall and fight and protect all those that are there? We cannot control what others do, but we can control how we react. My dear Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendoz Nersen, taught me the way we react to darkness is with light. It was that moment that I made a decision. No matter what happens to me, I'm going to save as many people as possible. I should have been dead by now, based on the rule of statistics. I was in the line of fire, bullets flying all the way. My fingers got blown off, but I did not stop. The Rebbe taught me, as a Jew, you are a soldier of God. You need to stand tall and stand fast and do whatever it takes to change the world. My life has changed forever but it changed so I could make change. And I could help others learn how to be strong, how to be mighty and tall. Many have asked me, Rabbi, where do we go from here? How do we prevent this? And my response is what my Rebbe told me when President Ronald Reagan was shot. The Rebbe said, we need to go back to the basics and introduce a moment of silence in all public schools so that so that children 
from early childhood on could recognize that there's more good to the world, that they are valuable, that there is accountability, and every human being is created in God's image. If something good could come out of this terrible, terrible, horrific event, let us bring back a moment of silence to our public school system. I also want to thank United States of America. I'd like to thank our dear, honorable Mr. President for being, as they say in Yiddish, a mensch par excellence. Mr. President, when you called me, I was at home weeping. You were the first person who began my healing. You healed people in their worst of times, and I'm so grateful for that. You have helped me bring great honor to Mrs. Lori Kay of blessed memory a 60-year-old dear friend of our congregation. I've known her for 25 years, a staunch volunteer. She works for the Friendship Circle, an organization that helps children with special needs. And you helped us bring Lori Kay great honor. And God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, Thank you. The IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is a game-changer, says Ilan. Using the diplomatic language of a senior envoy, he dropped his guard purposefully when referring to Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Amid the relative political uncertainty he feels here in London as an outsider, he gave Corbyn a swipe, while at the same time congratulating him on adopting the IHRA in full. In other words, we're watching you and we know you relented to pressure. And I want to thank the Labour Party for adopting the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Without condition. Without condition, despite the efforts of Jeremy Corbyn to, to apply conditions. It was adopted without condition, and I want to compliment uh, the Labour Party, and including you mentioned, you mentioned John Mann, one of my heroes who's been terrific. Ilan is of Iraqi Jewish heritage. His grandfather was prosecuted during Iraqi show trials against Jewish community leaders during the time of the founding of the State of Israel. But Ilan triumphantly returned to his ancestral lands of the family during his Iraq War service as he led U.S. soldiers in lighting Hanukkah candles in the presidential palace of deposed President Saddam Hussein. Ilan is also a JAG Corps officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, and as an Iraq War veteran, he's a major. He was deputy district attorney in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. His work focused on prosecution of crimes committed by street gang members. And as a lawyer, I ask him where boundaries of free speech guaranteed in his country more fervently than in Europe meet with race hate speech. Ilan ran as a Republican to succeed retiring Congressman Henry Waxman, representing California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He says who he is and what he's done has led to his role in the Trump administration. My pleasure, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Yes, Iraqi Jewish on my mother's side. And um, it really informs what I do as, as the United States Special Envoy on anti-Semitism. My mother was a young girl when, uh, in Iraq when there was a knock at the door. My grandfather had shaving cream on his face. It was early in the morning. And, uh, and they were soldiers, and they took him away. They dragged him away. He was paraded through the streets in leg irons like a slave, people jeering. Uh, and, uh, and then he was thrown in prison. And, and my mother, as a young girl, remembers visiting her father 
uh, in prison until finally he said, don't wait for me, escape, flee the country. And so my mother is a young girl, uh, my uncle who was a toddler at the time, and my grandmother, their mother, um, without their father because he was in prison, they fled across the border to Iran. A very different Iran from today, of course, Johnny. The Shah was helping Jews escape and giving Jews asylum. So they fled to Iran and from Iran to Israel. So that experience of rank anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, my grandfather was, was rounded up wholesale with Jews from, from around the country in 1948. And, uh, and that painful experience with anti-Semitism you know, scarred my family. Uh, very much informs what I do today. So it would be a sweet moment for their grandson to be lighting Hanukkah candles in the former presidential palace of the deposed Saddam Hussein. Well, that was just a, uh, a thrill. It was an incredible moment. I, I arrived in Iraq, which by itself would be extraordinary. The son of a, of a refugee who fled the country, returning as a United States uh, military officer to help liberate and build a free, tolerant, pluralistic Iraq. That by itself would be, would be um, uh, an, an extraordinary twist of fate. But here I arrived at the, uh, in Baghdad and then in the, in the former presidential palace, which, which became sort of the, the, uh, the seat of the governance structure of the coalition. So the country was run out of that building, and, and the chaplain had posted a list of services on the wall. And you can imagine, Johnny, a, a makeshift chapel, this lavish room, marble, high ceilings, impressive... Uh, really a palace, and this was the chapel, and the chaplain had posted a list of services, and there were, you know, ecumenical, really a beautiful moment of, of tolerance, Catholic Mass on Sunday, Protestant worship on Sunday, Shia, Sunni, there was something missing. And so I thought to myself, well, my goodness, are, we've come to liberate this country, and what, are we placating anti-Semitism by not having, uh, you know, Shabbat service included in the mix? So I went to speak with the chaplain, and I said to him, sir, you know, he's a colonel, I, at the time was a lieutenant, I said, sir, you know, I, I see this list of services, thank you, it's very nice, but there's nothing Jewish on the list, is there a reason? And his answer, Johnny, was emblematic of the United States, of the army, and of the chaplaincy. He said to me, yes, there's a reason, there's no one to lead it, I've been asking everybody. I certainly can't, can you? And so I said, you know, sign me up. This was my chance to... Uh, to not only express myself Jewishly, but to really provide an incredible service to Jewish service members and civilians who were there, uh, you know, in danger, in a war zone. And so the first thing we did was lighting a Chanukiah, uh, the Chanukah Menorah, in the presidential palace of Saddam Hussein, the first Jewish service ever to occur in that building. And it was a powerful moment because Chanukah, you know, is about defeating despotism and reclaiming land defiled by tyranny. And here, what were we doing in Iraq, if not that? And amazingly enough, that Chanukiah, that Chanukah menorah that, that we lit, was donated to the coalition by an Iraqi Jewish uh, refugee who fled Iraq, just like my family had done, and, and was so grateful for the liberation of Iraq that he donated the Chanukiah. That's what we lit. And then after that, every week, uh, I had the great privilege of leading Shabbat services in the presidential palace, and we had a minyan every week for, for Shabbat services, and it was just a, an, an extraordinary privilege. That is amazing. And, of course, uh, lending yourself to what we're all supposed to be, which is the priest class. 
that, uh, that Jewish people um, are meant at any opportunity to, to lead the service and to, uh, to take responsibility uh, for uh, the Jewish community to build one wherever they can. So that is a marvellous story. Well, Just a great, great moment and a great honour. You're listening to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free, and I want to keep them free, and so donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash johnnygould. A special thank you for the chance to meet Special Envoy Mr. Elan Carr was made by Sergeant Benjamin Anthony of Our Soldiers Speak. Thank you, Benjamin Todaraba. So in 2014, you ran as a Republican to succeed the retiring Congressman Henry Waxman. Uh, You represented California's 33rd Congressional District in a heavily Democratic district. And your message centered on bipartisan solutions to the country's problems. So you are a guy who believes in unifying one simple message, a truth as best as you can. You know, I think when you said I'm a guy who, who stands for unity, I don't think there is a message I speak uh, to more frequently than the need to come together in unity um, and confront the challenges that we face. We, we as, uh, as the Jewish community, we as, as, um, as citizens of, of our countries, uh, we face we face substantial challenges, and and yet and yet in in attempting to confront these challenges, we find ourselves polarized uh, to an extent that that really few of us can remember in recent times. That's certainly the case in in my country, in the United States, and that's of course now there's a growing rift here and, and a certain a certain amount of political uh, uh, instability here uh, in the UK as well, and so. I think uh, unity is really the message. We can disagree on issues always, but we must do it respectfully, and we must do it with with an understanding of the other side. And then, when when you know we're confronting challenges that really affect us all, we have to seek common ground and find common ground. And and, and I think you know they say this about marriage. You know, you uh, when a marriage when people focus on their differences, well, the marriage is dysfunctional and it ends. But when a couple seeks common ground, then the marriage is strengthened. Well, I think that's, that's a model for citizenry as well. We have to always strive and find common ground and, and confront uh, the challenges that affect us all. And that really is, uh, is my message, perhaps more than any other message. By the way, with regard to confronting anti-Semitism, the unity of the Jewish community is especially important uh, and at times an elusive asset. And, uh, and so I think, I think really when it comes to, for all the disagreements that, that one might have with others, when it comes to uh, fighting for Jewish safety and for the safety of, of our children and our grandchildren, the Jewish community has to stand together and confront uh, the challenges, whether it's anti-Semitism of the, of the far ethnic supremacist right, whether it's anti-Semitism emanating from the hostile anti-Zionist Israel-hating left, or from radical Islam. Three different sources, but they're all the same. It's all about Jew hatred, and and we've got to come together and confront that uh, in all its forms and in all its manifestations. So your job now is exactly that: international anti-Semitism monitoring, indeed, um, incitement that occurs in foreign countries. But it doesn't apply to anti-Semitism in the U.S., does it? So my, my office, which was created by Congress, is an office within the Department of State that looks outward. It is a foreign policy position. 
Um, however, the White House is keenly focused on increasing anti-Semitism throughout the world, and that includes in the United States. And so I've been tasked specifically by the White House uh, to be involved and to respond to anti-Semitism in the United States. For example, I represented the administration, not only the State Department, but the President and the White House at the funeral of Lori Kay, uh, who was murdered in Poway. This was a purely domestic anti-Semitism incident, and yet uh, I was the, the representative of, of the administration. And then, of course, when it comes to U.S. college campuses, there is a, a profoundly disturbing growth in anti-Semitism in college campuses in the United States. And, uh, and this is something that, <clears throat> that I and, and others, you know, my, my colleagues and partners throughout the administration, are, uh, are, are keenly focused on and, and hope to uh, change in, in meaningful and dramatic ways. Because Poway and Pittsburgh <clears throat> has suddenly opened up an anti-Semitism in the United States in, in ways that it had in ways, other countries. yes, yeah. in 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 new, in new ways certainly. I mean, it was a it was a shock yeah. that that hit the very core of the Jewish community and of the feeling of safety. The idea that that in the most philo-Semitic country in the history of the world, which the United States really is, I mean, it still is the most philo-Semitic country, Jews would be murdered in synagogues on Shabbat for being Jews. It's just unthinkable and really rattled the Jewish community to its core, understandably so. Um, however, I wouldn't say this was the first uh, manifestation of anti-Semitism in the United States. What's going on on college campuses <clears throat> and in academic circles and in some other circles is, is uh, uh, quite shocking. And, and on many campuses in the, in the United States, including at some of the most prestigious universities, there is truly a hostile educational climate for Jewish students and pro-Israel students. And uh, that is unacceptable. It's also illegal, violates federal law. And, uh, and I'm very grateful that, that our partners in the administration are, are, are focused on this and, and determined to change it. Now, your office was created by the Global Anti-Semitism Review Act of 2004. Correct. At a similar time in 2006 in this country, uh, a very courageous fighter against anti-Semitism, a guy called John Mann, MP, from the Labour Party, who is still a member of the Labour Party, is extremely opposed to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. He was part of a 2006 campaign which tried to address the rise of discrimination, anti-Semitism and other forms of racism via the internet. They identified that in 2006. So this is a problem that's been brewing on social media and online, well, for the best part of, should we say, 15 to 20 years. Do you think the main driver of this new kind of race hate is the internet, is social media, is unregulated media? So social media is a very powerful force in our lives today. And it is, it is not the cause of any uh, national disease or of any great virtue, but it is certainly the, the emissary. It's the, the vehicle. It's, and if, if one might say the vector for the, for the virus, it really is a vector. And, and so just as the internet has, and social media has the capacity to amplify a great good and, and really change our lives for the better, it also uh, propagates uh, social pathologies in a way and to an extent that we've really never seen before. That's the case certainly with anti-Semitism. We have to focus on it. We have to be concerned about it. We have to deal with certain parameters, for example, search paradigms that 
You know, when one puts Holocaust, should they get to Holocaust-denying websites or should they get to actually uh, factual websites about the Holocaust? So we can focus on those issues. But it's very important to, to, to say that the, the sickness itself isn't caused by social media. It's spread by social media. So we've got to focus, in addition with dealing with social media logistics, we've got to focus on the disease itself. Why are Jews hated? Um, why is this so-called new anti-Semitism, which is really not very new, but this so-called new anti-Semitism, which uh, attempts to disguise itself as Israel hatred and mm-hmm. Zionist hatred, why is this gaining widespread acceptance? Why is it embraced in, in circles? Why is it open to notorious on university campuses um, and among some national leaders in some countries? Um, I think those are valid questions, and this has to be opposed with every effort we can muster. This is dangerous. It is, it is unvarnished anti-Semitism, despite the effort of, of uh, dressing it up in the fig leaf of Israel hatred. It is anti-Semitism, pure and simple. Hatred of the Jewish state is hatred of the Jewish people, and the two cannot be distinguished. And so we've got to fight this. The next question is a philosophical question, which relates to free speech, which is such um, a tainted phrase when it should be the ultimate vanguard of every liberal democracy. Where does the line between free speech and anti-Semitism begin and end? Very, very difficult question. So I would say there is no line between free speech and anti-Semitism. The line is between free speech, uh, namely protected speech, and unprotected speech. Um, In the United States, of course, the First Amendment uh, confers protections far broader than the protections that that speech has in Europe. Uh, But even in the United States, there is some speech that is protected, there is some speech that is unprotected, and there's certainly a large body of jurisprudence that draws that line. However, this is a very important point. The definition of anti-Semitism and the line between speech that is anti-Semitic and speech that is not anti-Semitic has nothing to do with whether speech is protected or not. And and that's why uh, the people who use freedom of speech to try to undermine efforts to define anti-Semitism, you often hear it, well, this is anti-Semitic. Well, I, I have freedom of speech. One has nothing to do with the other. Look, the United States Supreme Court allowed the Nazis of the United States, the neo-Nazis, to march in Skokie, Illinois. There's a big Supreme Court case about it. Why? Because it was protected speech. The Nazis are anti-Semitic. Nobody suggested that that march wasn't wasn't an anti-Semitic orgy. Of course it was. But under U.S. jurisprudence, not Europe's, but under the United States jurisprudence, it still was protected, even though it was anti-Semitism. So the definition of speech is anti-Semitic, or let's say is not anti-Semitic, right? There is a line somewhere. It has nothing to do with whether speech is protected or not. And so those who, who, who wave the flag of free speech as an effort to undermine uh, the, the definition of certain speech as, as anti-Semitic are really trying to obfuscate the issue and trying to use free speech as a weapon against being able fairly to call out speech as anti-Semitic. We've got to be able to do that. Incidentally, if we're talking about free speech, it is certainly the free speech of the good guys to say that's anti-Semitic. I think that's free speech too. And so we've got to be able to do that. And when people are expressing themselves anti-Semitically, whether it's against Israel or against Jewish communities, we've got to say that is anti-Semitic. If you're not able to define it, you certainly can't fight it. And so definitions are important. So is the future of protection of anti-Semitism in the IHRA definition? 
The IRA definition has been a game changer. This is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, and it specifically defines hatred of Israel, uh, anti-Zionism, or the application of double standards to Israel as anti-Semitism. It is a game changer for that reason. It doesn't limit free speech, but it allows us to say to those who are expressing themselves in an anti-Semitic fashion that, look, what you just said is anti-Semitic. And that is very, very important, which is why the IRA definition is so important. I want to thank the United Kingdom for adopting it, and I want to thank the Labour Party for adopting the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Without condition. Without condition, despite the efforts of Jeremy Corbyn to, to apply conditions. It was adopted without condition, and I want to compliment uh, the Labour Party, and including you mentioned, you mentioned John Mann, one of my heroes who's been terrific, as has been Gordon Brown, as has been Tony Blair, real leaders and champions of decency and justice, and I want to thank them for that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thank I did. Thank you. I appreciate it.